you can manipulate the test two ways. You can manipulate the test by the p-value of the questions you put in there, okay, or how you norm it, how you how you do the norming on it. I would say that what you're looking at is the you're looking at how you move. The reason you're a focus school is because you're subgroups, okay? So that the equity issue. So that becomes a huge issue for you to begin to look at. And yes, I really recommend you use those state release tests for two reasons. One, it gives you a sense of where your students are going to perform against the state test. But number two, it allows your students to become acquainted with the format. 50% of test scores are related to acquaintance with format. See, that's one of the reasons why every time a kid takes a practice SAT test, their scores on the average go up about 50 points. And the reason is they're more familiar with the, the format, okay? I recommend quarterly assessments to do that. Let me say one other thing about it. Another thing for your consideration, okay, and maybe some of these things are prohibited for you, but I'm going to show you the pieces that will help you, okay? whether you use them or not up to you, okay? But one of the things we did is we gave them the full state test the way they would take it in the actual event. What we found was this. Teachers were giving 30 to 45 minute tests in the classroom. But when the kids got into the real test, the test was two to three hours, okay? And they got tired and they quit. And so one of the things we did is at least twice a year before the test, we gave them the test as they would take it in the, the real day to figure out fatigue, okay? Does this make sense about equity? Why the subgroups in equity? Does this make sense? Okay, so that's actually how they're holding you accountable is your equity issues. Now, and the next step I'm going to recommend you do, so you don't have to insert this in your PLC if you don't want to, okay? But one of the steps I'm going to recommend you really do is this next step, particularly around COVID, for you're not proficient and you're near proficient. And just let me say one thing about this. COVID has created a huge issue in learning discrepancies. We know that children from poverty over the summer, when they're not in school for three months, they lose four months of reading gains and they lose seven months of math. Our kids have been out of school now since March. And the schooling they have had has been disjointed and sporadic for many of them. So if you start looking at losses, they're huge. And so the question becomes then, how are we going to, as a profession, start dealing with this? So I'm going to recommend a process to you for your consideration. I would, particularly for PE teachers, art teachers, by the way, when you drop art and music out of a school curriculum, within two years, your math and reading scores drop by one to two grade levels. Did you know that? You drop art and music. And so one of the things is you want, you want a team approach. 
And so what I'm going to recommend that you do, uh, and doesn't have to be part of your PLC process, if you maybe your grade level process, I don't know. But you're going to have to start thinking about these students that are proficient or not near proficient or not there. You're going to have to think about them in terms of how you support them with a team around them. Who's on that team? For example, does your PE coach help them with their future story? Okay, because I saw the future stories that came out of seventh and eighth grade and they were wonderful. Do you, you help them monitor that? Who helps them with their emotional social learning? You're going to look at all your team members and say, okay, how are we going to support this kid? And one of the things that means is that somebody's got to have constant contact with that kid uh, three to four minutes a day. Is it a text on a phone? What is it? How are you going to find out what's happening to that kid? Um, I don't know what's going on in right now, but I can tell you in Corpus Christi, Texas, where I live, the school district has about 30,000 kids. They've had 13 secondary school suicides since March. So one of the things is you're going to start looking at um, where they are. And you, this it becomes a team that you start to surround the kid because we're going to have to develop some sort of modified learning plan, an IEP or something for students who've lost so much schooling, okay, um, what we're going to do with them. So I would, somewhere along the line, you've got to figure out your subgroups and you've got to figure out these kids. Pacing guides. They are critical because of time. You don't have time. So the bottom line is it happens in pacing guides now is this. You're now back to your PLC thing. And so you want to collect and chart your data to indicate how students are performing against your standards. That's the next step, okay? So what you want to figure out is subgroup some way or another. Maybe it's not part of this form. Then you got to figure out, okay, who are these kids that are most, who've lost a lot? How are we going to start picking them up and moving them in, okay? What do we know about them, okay? And then you can go to your learning objectives. Now, here it says the number of students assessed. And I'm assuming that this is based on sub-testing by learning objectives. But the problem is this. You also have to know somewhere in here who you didn't assess. So in other words, how are you keeping track of everybody? Because legally, you're held to keep track of everybody, okay? And then you have the not proficient, the near proficiencies, and the number of students that fit. So you want to now look at, for those kids who aren't making it against the learning assess-based strategies, what are we, what, how are we going to start working with them? So we've got two, two issues now. When we come back, quote unquote, to normal testing again, it'll be changed somewhat, but we're going to have to think about huge discrepancies in learning. What specific interventions will be most useful? I'm going to show you that next when we look at effect size, okay? What actually pays off for your time and what doesn't and why pacing guides are really about time allocation, okay? 
I want to show you now how you start looking at uh, students and performance and assessing the student and where they are and what you need to do for them. And I want to introduce this book to you. This is called Research-Based Strategies. And what we did with this book is I want to show you an overview. We linked all of these strategies to um, John Hattie's research. So John Hattie's research is effect size. So in other words, for the amount of time you spent on something, did you get an effect? So once you know where your kids are by subgroup, once you know who you got to move and how, how you want to move them, who you have to move, then you have to start assessing them, breaking it down and analyzing it against learning objectives and against the kid. Here's the issue in a nutshell. Teaching is outside the head, but learning is inside the head. And what you're trying to do is mesh this, okay? What does this student have inside their head? What do I need to provide so that we can get to this learning objective? How do we do that? And so one of the things that has to be assessed is time. How much time do I have to do this? And can I do it in that amount of time? And time is the big limiting factor. So when we start looking at this, we're looking at effect size. For the amount of time you spend on something, what did you get out of it? Like, you know, I bought that uh, exercise video the other day. Uh, it was called Buns of Steel. And uh, I want you to know I've laid on the couch now and watched it twice. Now, if my doctor says, have you been spending time with exercise? You know, I can be righteous and say yes. But did it do me any good? No. So I was working with a seventh grade teacher and she was spending one day a week on spelling. And I said to her, I said, that's 20% of your time one day a week. Are you getting results? She said, what do you mean? I said, are you getting payoff? I said, are the students spelling better? She said, no. I said, are they writing better? She said, no. I said, are they using those words in their writing? No. Are they reading better? No. I asked her a series of questions and I said, so why are we doing it? There's no effect size. One of the things that coaches will tell you, your really good coaches understand exactly which exercises get the greatest effect. And so you're looking at, for the amount of time I spent on something, what did I get? So John Hattie did meta-analysis. And if you'll go in your book now, right in the table of contents, what you've got is this whole situation on effect size. Now, John Hattie has written three books. So we have the effect size. And later on in the book, we've got a chart that just breaks out what he found by effect size by the different books he wrote. Okay. Meta-analysis, when you put a bunch of studies together and you look at overall effect. Um, and so what we've got is the page number of this strategy, what the effect size of it was, and then whether it's academic, behavioral, or both. All right. Now, Here's your strategy number, here's your strategy name, the page number, the effect size, and what type of strategy it is, okay? Now, I wanna talk about effect size. The bottom line is this, what happens is zero is no effect, okay? When it gets greater than zero, we start looking at the effect. And one of the things he found was that if it's minus, 
it had a detrimental effect. He called them the disasters, and they they are squared by poverty. Okay. One of the one of the things I want to say right now that's happening, and I want I just want to talk about this as an aside here. As many of you know, University of California system this year decided that they were perma- they're not going to use SAT scores as as a factor in school admittance, and the reason is this they weren't getting enough diversity. Well, people decried it, said it was horrible, et cetera. But in the hard research, if you grow up in generational poverty, two generations or more, it impacts your standardized achievement scores by a half a standard deviation. One of the things we know is that SAT is largely about vocabulary and experience with written text, okay? And the bottom line on the thing is if that is not in your environment, it doesn't mean your deficit. It just means the environment failed to provide that for you. And so poverty is such a huge impact that we have also looked at it, the effect size of poverty on this as well. And what we know is this, that if it's at 0.4, if it had an effect size of 0.4, you got one year of growth for one year of time. So in other words, you got, you did this, you got one year of growth for literally one year of time. If you got higher than that, greater than that, then you got more payoff for the time you spent on it. Let me give you one more example. Payoff for time. This is an example of how a teacher got that. This would be a young example. But when my son was two and a half, we put him in swimming lessons. And this teacher was phenomenal. She was a teacher who at the end of 10 lessons had these little kids, they're two and three-year-olds, these little kids swimming the length and back of a competition-sized Olympic pool with with a lap board 10 times. Now, that's a lot for a little kid, okay? But let me tell you payoff for time. And I just want to show you how she accelerated their growth. Like to get their kids' heads in water. I mean, kids cry about that. What she said to them is, hey, can you hear the fish? Well, every little kid stuck their head in the water. You want to hear the fish? What are they saying? Are they talking to you? Okay. To teach them to stroke, what she did was she had them on lap boards with an aide pulling them through the water. And they had to give the aid five, okay? And then they put that hand back down on the lap board, give the aid five with the other hand. She taught him to stroke. I mean, she was amazing. The payoff for time was unbelievable. So the further you get up from there, the greater the payoff. And what we know is this. When you get to 1.0 payoff, you get one standard deviation above the norm. Basically, that means you got two years of growth in one year, okay? It means then that when you get up to 1.6, you get as much as three years above and beyond the average effect. So as we start climbing these effect sizes, what I'm going to say to you, these are strategies that accelerate the progress for the same amount of time. And I want to back up and say one thing. One of the biggest problems with state assessment as we know it right now 
is it assumes that learning occurs within X amount of time, nine months. That you can take a child here and in nine months you can get them over here when they come in at all different levels. And they're gonna come in actually after COVID at much greater disparities. So the question becomes, how do you accelerate literally the time? And that's why we're looking at effect size. Now, on these influences, okay, let's just look. What has a 0.58 cooperative learning, okay? And what has a 0.29? Open versus traditional instruction. Open instruction doesn't get you as much learning as the more traditional. Here's another one, okay? Whole language instruction is 0.4. So you get one year growth for one year of time. Matching styles of learning is about there as well. Mobile phones, small group instruction, now you're moving up. Service learning, you're moving further up. Feedback is huge. One of the things we know is if you don't give accurate feedback, what happens is that uh, they don't actually know they're wrong. As a matter of fact, the research is that females need encouragement, but males, females underestimate their, their uh, production or their abilities and males overestimate. So feedback is really important in that whole thing. Predicting student grades, asking students to plan their grades has an effect size of 1.3. In other words, you get over two years of growth in one year just by making kids almost almost three years ago, just by making them look at their grades and predict what they're going to be on a weekly basis, okay? And then the one that gets the highest is teacher estimates of achievement. What do you expect a child to be able to do? One of the most interesting pieces of research I read was this, that teachers who teach about a third more content in a year get much higher achievement than teachers who don't. Now, I want to say something about this, okay? What I know is this, from the many years I've been in the business, is that when I teach adults, I give you more information than I think some people want. And the reason is this. I want to give you as much as I can because I know that there'll be a third more learning so one of the things is there'll be higher achievement as a result of it. So when I present, I really push. And a lot of people don't necessarily like that all the way, but I know that in terms of the learning curve, it's much higher. Why would the learning curve be higher if you teach more content? There's more content to retain. It's proportional. You reach the gifted. That's exactly, yeah. There are students who aren't getting enough exactly. More content can reach more students differently, yes. And so one of the things I know when I present, one thing I do, and I know when I present to you, and it's always a challenge, and it's particularly a challenge since I can't see your faces and be with you in person. But I know that each of you are going to take something different away from this that you're going to want to use. One, depending on what your own knowledge base is and your own schema, and number two, where you are in the development of your understanding of your career, all right? 
and I'm going to talk about that in a minute, why it's so critical for assessing students. Now, Hattie's effect size that correlates to an average score is what? What's the effect size? That means average. Yep, 0.4, exactly. It means you got one year of growth for one year of time. Now, why are Marzano's ratings different from Hattie's? Well, Marzano only analyzed strategies, but Hattie analyzed strategies and other life effects, okay? Now, if you go in your book now, what you will note now, the way you use this book is this. You go to page 15. And what we do, I'm going to give you an, an activity to do in just a bit. What you do is you look at what problems do I have with this student and what am I not getting from them? So what you do is page 15 with other people, okay? with tasks and assignments on page 16, content, managing self or behavior, reading, written language, math, external support systems. And we start assessing where is this student and what do we have to do and to get them to this learning objective. What I find is this, a lot of times we forget about the student and we get really focused on the learning objective or the standard. You have to think about the student because you're taking what that kid has in his head or her head or their head, and you're trying to match it with the content they're supposed to have and make that happen with them. And so what we start looking at is as we analyze this student, what are we seeing? And then what strategy do we need to use to move this student along? And Here's the activity I'm going to ask you to do now. I need you to put, select one student. Put that student's name or initials there. And who are the teachers that surround that student? Who are they? What teachers has this student, if you can find that out? That becomes their support team. Now, the first thing you're going to do is identify a description of this student. It needs to be a student you have right now, okay? And they are either in near proficient level or not proficient, all right? And who are they, okay? And you can also, because you've got the IB program, you've got gifted kids who are not performing well either. In the back of Emotional Poverty Book 2, there's an issue on gifted kids. Since you got the IB program, if you will all just uh, bear with me for about five minutes, I want to talk about gifted kids, okay? I taught, I ran a gifted program at Midland High School for two years, okay? And I taught them, okay? And one of the things is, is that there's a couple misunderstandings about them. One is if they get over, I just wanted to go back to IQ concept. If they get over 130, Okay, they're in the top two and a half percent in of the population. So they're two standard deviations from the norm. If they get over 145, they're three standard deviations from the norm. And the research is this. If you're three standard deviations or more from the norm, you can't fit in, period. All right. I don't care if it's by height, by by weight, by uh, shoe size, whatever. Okay. Um, 
I was on the plane one time with that basketball player from China. This is several years ago, who was seven, seven, two, seven, three. I, I forget. He was in first class and he had his, he was in that seat right by the front. His knees were rubbing the headboard. Okay. When he walked down the jetway, he had to stoop the whole way down because his head's too high. All his clothes have to be custom made. You know, he's probably almost four standard deviations from the norm. And what you look then is the more standard deviations a kid gets from the norm, the more difficult it is for them to function socially and emotionally. Number two, if you're a gifted kid, the research is that on the average, you're two grade levels above your peers academically, and you're two grade levels below your peers emotionally. And so one of the worst things that happens with gifted kids is we promote them because of their intelligence. It delays their emotional growth. And what happens then is that you have all kinds of behavioral issues. And the reason they're behind two years emotionally is because they are so sensitive to data and they can't necessarily sort it all out. The third thing about them is this. If they decide that they're not going to do something, God himself could change their mind. Okay. So within that group, you have students from 130 to 145, that third standard deviation, that second standard deviation in there, third standard deviation. You have kids in that who are achievers, they want to please, and you have kids in there who are gifted, and they don't care if they please you or not, okay? And so the bottom line is they're only going to do the assignments they like, and unless you can convince them otherwise, they're not going to do any of the others. So we know that three out of every 10 high school dropouts are actually gifted, and they dropped out because they just weren't willing to be a part of that. Does that include a sliding scale? Uh, what do you mean by that? A sliding scale in terms of standard deviations? Yes. See, so here's the problem with it. Yes, it is and it isn't a sliding scale. What is a sliding scale is how the IQ operates along that. Giftedness can go anywhere from 130 IQ over 200. So the problem is, is you have more differences in that two and a half percent of the population than you do in the total rest of the population. So one of the things I say to parents when they tell me how bright their kid is, I'll say, well, one of the things you're going to want to do is get them tested to see how many standard deviations they are from the norm. The more standard deviations they are from the norm, the more difficult it's going to be for them to have any kind of social interaction, unless they can find a few people like that, okay? So one of the reasons I know about this is that my former husband, Frank Payne, who died, um, he was came out of extreme poverty. He had one of the brightest families I've ever met in my life. He had three siblings with IQs over 150, okay? So that man and one, a sister with an IQ of 160. So she's four standard deviations from the norm. So the bottom line, she doesn't fit, okay? And she's an alcoholic. The bottom line on the thing is this, the reality is huge. So what you wanna look at is when you're dealing with your IB population, 
they're all over the place, sometimes they have as many issues and problems as the other population does uh, because of that huge discrepancy. We know that females who are very smart in middle school, okay, often give up achievements so they can have relationships because it's just too uncomfortable. They want to fit and they want to belong, so they give up achievement. So one of the reasons is you want that future story so they don't do that, okay? And the other thing then is you want to be able to move along that continuum. So I want to say that about gifted. And one last thing about gifted males. A lot of gifted males out of poverty and sometimes not out of poverty get identified as ODD, oppositional defiant disorder. As a matter of fact, one of the things that's happening in middle and high schools is that more and more male students are being labeled as ODD, oppositional defiant disorder. And a lot of them are very bright. Okay. So when you start, and they're not, they're just gifted and they're not channeled appropriately. And one of their biggest problems is they don't have friends. 